I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and this week uh, we're unable to bring you our standard revelatory and succinct film discussion slash rambling chat and have got you not one but two interviews instead. Yes, this week sees the release of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's Yorgos Lanthimos' follow-up to the wildly weird dissection of romance he created in 2015 with The Lobster. Once again, Colin Farrell is front and centre, and doing the dissecting himself as a heart surgeon cursed by the son of one of his former patients in a gripping, funny, and utterly unique retelling of the myth of Iphigenia. I sat down with the director, as well as Barry Keegan, who plays Martin, the boy at the centre of the film, who gleefully stirs this pot of nightmares ready to rain down on Farrell's Stephen and his family. So we are delighted to welcome Yorgos Lanthimos, director of The Killing of a Sacred Deer, onto the Curzon Film Podcast. Hello. Just before we hit record there, I asked Yorgos how long he's been here. He's been here since nine. We're heading until five uh, talking about uh, his film. And uh, how do you find talking about your own film? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, I you're not meant to be doing this I think but um, I don't know the way things are structured and uh, um, you know you have to find ways of you know communicating about the films to people but uh, I find it really hard to be uh, talking about something you've created uh, because I think you know it, it normally stops there I mean you make something and you you know you hand it out to the world and then they can make of it, whatever that they feel they 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 make of it, and uh, you know that's what you have to say. And then on top of that, you know, having to uh, discuss it a lot, uh, and especially when people are after specific uh, answers uh, <laughs> to certain questions that they have, it it, it gets difficult. Mm. I'm reminded of David David Lynch saying that I make the thing and people ask me what the thing is. The thing is the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he can put it in a much better way <laughs> and economical than I can. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so after that, we uh, we're gonna have to talk about this film. Yeah, think, still, yeah. still, despite having you know denounced it. Yeah. Um, well, you can just go off and just make up answers. That's fine. Yeah. Um, Maybe you can lie a little bit. Change oh, it. Change it up. Yeah, that can get us some good clickbait. <laughs> um, so for me, uh, going into this film, I was I was brought up on Greek myths as a kind of uh, bedtime story. Uh, and I loved them, uh, but I didn't really encounter Iphigenia that much. Yeah. Uh, I think perhaps it's a Greek myth that you maybe encounter when you're older. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's a, it's no, uh, it's a Greek tragedy. I mean, that's <laughs> what it is. So I guess it's not a good bedtime story. Um, yes, it was uh, Iphigenia in Olis in particular, because there's another one. Um, by Euripides is a tragedy that I, I, I encountered yeah, later in, in life. I mean, you, you are taught um, most of these uh, trage- tragedies and about those writers in, in school in Greece, but it's, you know, it's not done in a very attractive way. So I think, you know, at that point and at that age uh, and the way it is taught, uh, when you feel it's something obligatory and it, it has to be done fast and you have to memorize a lot of stuff around it. It's it's not as pleasant, but um, later in life when I started, you know, reading things and uh, chose to become a filmmaker and I also did directed some plays in the theater and I started reading more uh, plays and other things, um, I did read it again, and I, uh, you know, and I really loved it. Um, so I, I was aware of it, um, and uh, I was reminded of it, of it again when we started writing the screenplay for the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, uh, so as soon as we came up with the initial idea and started writing the story of it. Um, I just remembered that there are certain similarities uh, with what we were writing um, with uh, Iphigenia. And um, I thought it was important to somehow reference it in the film because uh, I find quite interesting the fact that, you know, similar kind of issues um, and themes have been explored since ancient years. Um, and a lot of these have not, we haven't found the way to resolve them still. And they're, and they're even considered taboo nowadays if you transport them into something contemporary and deal with them in contemporary terms. Because somehow, you know, people, um, they, they, they can accept, you know, uh, experience something like that in theater and because it's uh, labeled as a Greek tragedy and a classic text but when you make something similar with similar um, themes and stories in a contemporary setting in a in a film uh, people are much more disturbed by it um, that's interesting because when you think of theater you think of there being no barrier there you can yeah. see the people but in a way there is a real barrier there, and it's in cinema that you've removed that. Yeah, in, yeah. In a certain way, I guess you can make certain things more real, seemingly real. I guess in cinema. Yeah, it's interesting that 
a lot of people have referred to this as an adaptation or an updated version of, but this story came first before. Yeah, I guess maybe it's also a little bit of our fault because initially it was talked about uh, when the film started being discussed before we even finished it that it was inspired by the the by the Greek Greek tragedy. Um, but yeah, the truth is, you know, is as I as I described it. I mean, we did start writing first, and then we felt because of certain similarities that it was interesting and important to reference it throughout the film and make this kind of connection. Okay. Um, now, uh, a lot gets made of the, the rhythm of the dialogue in your films, uh, but I had heard with this one that it was Colin who uh, came over from The Lobster, started doing this rhythm and actually just kind of infected everyone rather than uh, you telling them to do that. Was that. Is that the case? Well, not really. I mean, I, we never... I never tell them to do anything, <laughs> uh, especially in the way that they they speak. Or um, um, and I, I have to say that I don't think that you know the the way that the actors you know perform in this film is necessarily the same as in uh, my earlier films, especially the Greek ones. Um, so. What I think is that there's a certain kind of tonality that comes from the language itself, like the language. When I'm saying the language, I mean the the style of the of the text itself, the voice of the written word, uh, that has a very specific rhythm and it sounds in a certain way, and uh, it, it can only work in a particular way. And I think, you know, actors who are sensitive to it and intelligent and aware of, you know, the the general tone of the film, they just, you know, tune into the right uh, sound themselves. So you don't really have to make people speak in a certain way. Uh, it's just, it's just uh, the natural way of, you know, saying those kind of things. And I guess it's, Compared to certain other things, to certain other approaches in filmmaking, it might seem very particular. But, um, you know, if you take it as a standalone thing, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, that uh, strange or foreign. Mm. And uh, this world that this film takes place in, uh, Colin Farrell said that it feels like it's the nightmare from a character from The Lobster. <laughs> um, and there is a certain dreamlike quality to it. Um, the world that is inhabited, it almost feels empty except from the people that need to be there. Um, what was what did you imagine when you imagined this, the world of the sacred deer? Um, I, I didn't imagine a world early on because my idea for this was that it would take place in the real world. Um, and I think that's important also for the elements that are seemingly unreal or supernatural or unexplained, inexplicable, whatever you want to call them. Um, so in order for those to work, it, it had to be grounded, the film, in the real world. Uh, but then there's, you know, there's again various approaches in in making a film, and I, you know, I do believe in less is more. So I didn't want to cramp the the frames of the film with a lot of unnecessary noise, and I guess it's a preference that I have in general. So I guess it's 
you know, relatively sparse in uh, other elements, um, and it gives it a certain kind of of texture. Okay, and um, we actually have a we have a Greek co-host of our podcast who couldn't make it today, and <laughs> she was very annoyed. Um, but she, I remember she was writing. Uh, her dissertation about the Greek weird wave and uh, she wanted me to bring it up with you um, alongside Athena Sangari as well I, I doubt you go out to create a movement uh, but did you ever feel like there was something that needed to be reinvented in Greek cinema before you started making films? Um, well it never started that way and I actually doubt there is a, uh, a movement uh, I think there's just uh, the the natural you know passage of time that happened, and uh, you know there's a younger generation of filmmakers. It became easier to make films with less, um, and uh, you know because of the relative success of a couple of Greek films, um, then there was an attention uh, towards you know. Uh, new films from Greece, but I I never really saw a very particular uniting you know wave that you know you can identify creatively and say that that's a movement. <clears throat> Sorry. So I think that it was just a younger generation of people that you know they started making films, realized that they don't need as much in order to make films, but they were the films that are were made and are still being made are very different to each other uh, and uh, you know it's just a sign of a of a younger generation you know making different things and uh, being uh, inspired by you know a more globalized world um, and becoming part of it okay and um Imagine the move to English language probably has its financial benefits, um, but how does it affect the storytelling for you? Does it change that in any way? Um, it doesn't change the storytelling. Uh, what I'm having trouble with uh, moving from making films in Greece with my friends um, and entering a much more professional structure and uh, more rigid structure and inflexible I guess the way I characterized it says a lot about the yeah. problems that I face. Yeah. But um, it's, I mean, it's at this point, it, it is necessary for, for me to be working uh, within this structure in order to have the means to make the films that I want to make. But at the same time, I am trying as much as I can to infuse these structures with some of the some of the positive stuff that I learned from making films with my friends. And so whenever I can, I... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Try to um, bend, you know, the rules as much as it is possible of, of what is expected, you know, from a certain film or from a certain budget or from a certain kind of crew or from a certain scene or, you know, anywhere that I can... Uh, infuse some kind of uh, spontaneity and flexibility in making films. I, I try to do it. It's hard because, you know, people have learned to work in a specific way and it's hard for them to accept uh, certain things, that certain things can be done differently, that certain filmmakers are in need of different things to, to m- make the work that they're trying to make. So it's a constant process of finding the right people to surround yourself with in order to be able to achieve that in a different environment and structure. Mm. I'm really interested by the fact that you're looking for spontaneity because <laughs> uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer feels so composed and it's so f- fully built yeah. as an idea. Was there any, any moment that you can remember on, on set where you just like, oh no, let's just try something? Well, all the time. I mean, the fact that you create something which which feels uh, precise and composed doesn't mean it was made that way. I mean, you do have to try a lot of different things in order to find what works and what doesn't. And that's where, you know, the need of flexibility and spontaneity comes because, you know, you might be trying a scene in here and for some reason it's not working and you're going to go... Why, do, why don't we go outside in the terrace and do this and set it up? And then, you know, that in Greece, for instance, I would do it in a minute. But here, the, you know, people would go, what in the terrace? We don't have a, a, per, a permit and there's, there's, no, uh, there's no barrier and someone can fall off the terrace and what's going to happen? We have to get call the insurance and, you know, there's, there's a whole, you know, pandemonium happening about, you know, someone saying, like, let's just have these people speaking in the terrace instead of in the room. So that's, you know, the kind of thing that I'm talking about, which is hard to achieve yeah. in this kind of an environment. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> Yorgos, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. So that was Yorgos Lanthimos, director of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Now we have Barry Keegan, who some may remember as George Mills from Dunkirk. And after working with Lanthimos and Christopher Nolan, he's definitely set to take over the world in the next few years. Um, so we are we are delighted to uh, welcome Barry Keegan onto the Curzon Film Podcast to talk about the killing of a sacred deer. Yes. Yep. How you doing? Good, man. Yep. Good. Um, it's pretty exciting. This is the day after the premiere of the film at the London Film Festival. Um, London Film Festival is in. It kind of marks the end of the calendar year for festivals. Um, so has it been a pretty good journey taking this film around? And yeah, I mean Cannes, Toronto. Um, it's been nice. It really has. Like getting to travel with this and see all the different audiences as well. Like you know, um, I think last night was probably the best audience. Yeah. Do you, have really people was. been reacting to it differently? Yeah, Twitter has been buzzing about it. It really has. Like, and do you think 
the when you've been in the room or on the red carpet at Cannes, you're definitely getting a different spectrum of audience compared to what you're getting on the red carpet in yeah, Leicester like Square. the movie the movie industry, like the industry people are a bit more, you know, a bit about it. Um, some love it, some hate it. The general public, I think, they're young. They they want to see something like this. You know, they want to. It's it's 2017. Like you know, we're not we're not looking at everything as a happy ending anymore, or the 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 basic plots of movies. Like where people are up for experimental movies. People are up for movies being shot on iPhones. People, you know. So I think a young crowd is really gonna dig this. Yeah, and. I think, well, clearly it's got a market because it's drawing in big names as well. Yeah, right? yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited for my hometown as well to see it, Ireland, which is going to be, I think, at the end of the month or so. But Yeah, yeah, that must be pretty amazing. Um, so you said on the said on the red carpet last night that your director, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, mm. has his own genre. Yeah. Is there any way that you could describe what that genre is? No, I can't pinpoint. Like it's a mix of everything, isn't it? Um, like he, you look at last night, like the film last night, and there's co- comedy, there's thrillers, there's psychological thriller, there's horror, there's there's just a, there's uncomfortableness, there's everything in it. You know, there's so many layers to every single one of his movies. So I believe he has his own genre. He's created, you know, his own language, his own rhythm of speech, his own, you know, way of acting, and you know, these he makes he makes human beings like puppets. You know, he makes them like puppets. He's pulling strings, like you know, he's this is how he wants this person to walk in, do this. You know, it's 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 incredible. It really mm. is. Because you'll get um, like a director's trademark might be. I, I don't know like the way that they move the camera around mm-hmm. or the way that they dress people or yeah. the music that they use might yeah. be really recognisable but here performance is so recognisable yeah. which is something maybe that's a bit more unique to your gods. yeah yeah it is you know and it's I've seen it in The Lobster I mean I've seen that I think I, when I only came out and I was like what the fuck I was like what is this you know I was like this is mad but weird but good but ugh and I wrote them down on my phone. I wrote Yorgos Lanthimos on my list of directors. And and then when I signed with WME and Management 360, I said, I have this list of directors. I said, these are the ones I want to work with. Bartley and Yorgos, Chris Nolan. There was a ton of them, you know what I mean? Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. And, and then this kind of secretary came up. And then... Dunker came up and then Bart Layton came up and then so yeah um, I'm working with filmmakers who do have their own their own little trademarks like you know Chris Nolan to his, his visionary and Yorgos with his language and his his rhythms and, and Bart Layton with his documentary style mm. I think when you mention those names particularly with Nolan and Lanthimos I think a word that people might think of as being precise mm-hmm. like everything feels very composed everything is there for a reason um, but I want like with this and Dunkirk being very very different films but both directors being known for how precise they are what's, yeah, how does that very difference similar, very similar very different sets obviously um, very similar in, in, their, in their work ethics like in their ways of working and um, 
just precise and little direction because I think they 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 do it all in the casting room, you know, they, they cast the person, they know they won't have to, you know, they, they find that person. So they're very similar, they're both geniuses at what they do, they both have this vision. You can argue and say every director does, but I believe these two especially, and from what I know, because I've worked with them, they both have this vision. They can, they they foresee the end product. You know, Nolan stuck right to the script. Every single bit of that is in the script. Same with Yorgos, like everything. It's just, yeah, it's incredible. And so, speaking of the script. Uh for Killing of a Sacred Deer, Colin Farrell said that when he read it, he felt nauseous. Yeah. Uh, did you get that same feeling? I, I, I just loved it. I really did. It was gorgeous. It was really lovely writing. It was easy to... You know, it was funny. It was... Yeah, I read it in that rhythm because I've seen The Lobster, so I totally got it. Um, but it was dark. It was very dark. And I don't know whether it does appear different. You said you read it in that rhythm because mm. of seeing The Lobster. But actually on the page mm -hmm. is there any difference to how a Yorgos script might actually appear written down no does not you know it's same as another writer's like you know hello hello hi how are you how are you like it's the exact same same kind of you know plotting as a different writers or mm. directors but you read it in that rhythm that's really interesting and was that was it a conscious choice? Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, because I, I knew going into a Yorgos movie that this wasn't going to be a normal acting movie. Yeah. You know, I knew that this was going to be a... just like The Lobster and, and like Dogtooth. And so I read, I read it that way. Yeah. Um, so obviously we, we saw you in Dunkirk mm -hmm. and you're opposite Mark Rylance in there and you're very much on the side of the good in that. Yeah. Um, and Mark Ryan is obviously a very warm, nice guy. So yeah. imagine coming on to that. That was probably quite easy. Yeah. I mean, Mark and Colin both share a quality of, uh, you know, uh, they protect you and they, they look out for you, you know. And Mark is very observant. Yeah, I find he's very, very observant. Like, he, I feel he, he's watching us younger ones to see what we're bringing to the table, like, you know, because he's just a very... He wants to know. Like he's very interested in you as a person, and he, yeah, he's really, really special. And then Colin as well as you know, I wouldn't say a father, like a father figure, because I want to make him feel old, but like a brother, like on set, a big brother, you know, yeah. looking out for you because he's been young once as well. And but yeah, so it's interesting. I think with with Rylance, as I said, you're you're on the you're on our team effectively yeah. in Dunkirk but in this you've got to stand up against Colin Farrell and the Cole Kidman and these are massive names and you've got to go and intimidate them as well yeah. not just be alongside them yeah and that carry, must carry a lot of weight yeah I mean having the Cole Kidman kiss me feet <laughs> you know that's not something I thought I'd ever say um, <laughs> it's really not um, but I mean they were so so easy to work with they really were, mm. really so easy, and they're both like a mother and father on set, like you know. And look at them, the choices they're making now, and you know what the careers they've had, and and as us young actors to be around that and see how they talk to people on set and how they hold themselves and how polite they are and how they treat everyone with the same respect. It's just, I really mean, it was a pleasure to work with you with them. Yeah, I bet.
And um, what what I thought was really interesting about your character in Sacred Deer, I don't know how in what order you shot it, mm. but it takes a while, well, it did for me anyway, maybe I'm an idiot, mm. um, to figure out actually what the power dynamic is, what the relationship is. Yeah, yeah. I think that was Yorgos's, you know, conscious thing of not letting us in from these long shots at the start, you know, he keeps us away. You know, what's going on between this man and this boy? Like, you know, what's what is happening? And as we get into it, we see, boom, he's the higher, you know, he's got a plan, this kid, you know, and he's not stopping. Yeah, because the, I suppose the plot doesn't really drop for quite a while. It doesn't, no. But I, I like that, you know, I like the way Yorgos keeps it that way. And he works well with his cameraman and, you know, they were all conscious choices, I think. Yeah, and um, from an acting point of view, I imagine those long takes, in a way, might help you, like without breaking up a scene too much. You can actually lose yourself into it a bit. You more. can, yeah, especially with the environment he puts, you know, puts you in, and being in a hospital really helps make you feel like you're in a hospital. <laughs> you know, yeah. he really does. Like Chris, don't that for Dunkirk, put you on the boat. He really did help that way. So, and um, one one last question is uh, someone on Twitter pointed out that young Ian McKellen equals old Barry Keegan oh, yeah, <laughs> Ian I'll take yeah. that I mean yeah. I will take that if you had to uh, if you had to pick one Ian McKellen role for yourself where do you think you'd take it uh, obviously Lord of the Rings <laughs> <laughs> brilliant alright Barry thanks so much thanks man. a lot Cheers. thank you so much for listening make sure you go and watch The Killing of a Sacred Deer it is out now uh, if you want even more Lanthimos goodness, uh, there's a Q&A from a recent screening of the film, which you can watch on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, and as well as that, we've also got 7852, which is a documentary about the shower murder scene from Psycho, uh, which has just gone up on Curzon Home Cinema as well. So do check that out too. We will be back next week in our regular format with Hugh Bonneville to talk about Paddington 2. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.